0: Uh, we're finishing up, as I said before, this series uh, on what is truth, and we're looking at uh, the claims that Christianity makes and how our world responds to that, um, and trying to deal honestly with, uh, with the objections, uh, with the questions that we have. Number one, that if you are a believer, that you might be equipped to, to address those questions that your family, your friends, your neighbors, your workmates might have. But if you're here tonight and you're not sure where you fit in this spiritual scheme of things, to talk with you about the claims of Christ, uh, to present to you as honestly as we can what, what we think they are uh, in hopes of persuading you, but uh, no one's going to be twisting your arm. But we do want to present to you the idea that Jesus Christ is who he says he is, um, We've talked about, the, about God's existence. We've talked about the reliability of the Bible, uh, the resurrection. And uh, as I said, I believe uh, there were cogent arguments made for all of those things, uh, uh, made a good case that these things are true. But the question we're looking at tonight is if they are true, so what? What difference does it make? Uh, for many years, I had uh, books on my shelf from my st- days as a metallurgical student, engineering student. How many people know what metallurgy is? Some of you know what metallurgy? That was a, a picture of a text that I own, mineral processing and extraction. And uh, uh, I had those books on my shelf for 20 years. And I, everything in those books were true, but it didn't... But it didn't keep my wife from convincing me that those books had to go. Uh, they were taking up room. They were really heavy. They were hard to move around. And eventually, I did let go of them. I hadn't cracked them open in 10 years at a certain point. And so I let them go. So the fact that something is true doesn't necessarily mean it's going to shape my life or that I'm going to cherish it. There's a difference between acknowledging that something is true and having it be at the center of your life, having it make a difference. And we can see that even in the scriptures, as people are responding to Jesus, the things that he did, the miraculous things that he did, uh, the unbelievable things that he said, that uh, they responded differently to those things, those truths. And tonight we're going to walk through some of them. And I'm going to ask the question of you, what difference does it make that Jesus did live, that he did die, that he he was raised from the dead? So what? How do you want those things to shape your life? We're going to do that by looking at Mark chapter 2. It's the story of Jesus healing the paralytic, but we're not looking so much at at Jesus healing of this man, but the responses of different people to Jesus healing. In the context of this story. So, Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, we want to thank you for this evening, the opportunity to gather in your name, to be with friends, maybe even family, and, and to think about what it is that uh, you have done in, in history, in this world, and, and, and what you may do in our lives. We pray that by your spirit, you would be at work among us as we look at this passage and as we think about responding to you in a way which honors your love, your grace, and your mercy. Work that in us, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. How many people here struggle with allergies? Some of you. How many, how, how many of you know that uh, St. Louis is one of the worst cities in America for allergies? Okay, a lot of you know, you know that. Uh, my kids always struggled with allergies and sensitivities, to all kinds of different things. But when we moved to St. Louis a number of years ago, uh, they seemed to really spin out of control. My girls, in particular, seemed to be sick all the time. But but my wife and my oldest son Eli were also suffering. Mary, my wife, just you know had, had it with being sick all the time, so she just started trying everything. She's a great mom, and like all great moms, just like I, I have to fix this for my kids. So she said about trying different things, reading about uh, you know allergies and, and uh, toxins, and, and, uh, and she came across these various kinds of treatments, specialized diets, she met uh, holistic doctors, started going to them, chiropractors. Uh, There's even a doctor, this is fairly recently, my, one of my twins, because of her bronchial issues, had learned to breathe in a weird kind of way, and the doctor said she needs to learn how to breathe it, Properly again. I was like, Really? I mean, breathing? And this kind of comes natural, doesn't it? I mean, do you have to learn how to breathe? And he said, Yep. And to my astonishment, uh, she did have to learn how to breathe again. And it really changed her personality. Uh, you, you know, these, these diets and the various treatments they had, the holistic doctors, the chiropractors, despite the fact that I had some serious skepticism. The serious results were hard to argue with. But I have to say that my real attitude towards all this was summed up in a conversation that I had with my wife this past week. She was at work and she had whacked her hand pretty hard on a, a, she she works making lunches over at Westminster and and, and there was this large tray and she had hit her hand pretty hard on it so bad that she couldn't bend it properly. So if she tried to make a fist, it was looking like this. And she had gone to the chiropractor a couple times and then they were, you know, and they're sticking her with needles. I think that's called acupuncture. Uh, And just before we were going out to dinner one night, she went to this treatment. She came back. She said, it's fixed. Look, I can make a fist now. She was going on and on. It's wonderful. It's great. It's great. It's fascinating. And some of this too is her trying to convince me the, the value of all this because I've sort of remained distant from it. And she's trying to, you know, look how wonderful. This really works. And, I, and my response was, wow, that is awesome. I will never question that which doctor again. <laughs> and I say that to sort of point out that I am appreciative of what's happening there, but I am, I'm a little bit removed from it. And maybe to, um, uh, to, uh, to my own, mm, what's the right word? Uh, I'm sort of telling a story on myself. I probably should be more receptive than I am, but it is what it is. You know, I'm sort of removed from it. I'm glad it's helping them, but uh, I'm not about to show up in that doctor's office myself. get what I'm saying? Now in the scriptures, we see people responding just like I'm responding to those doctors, but they respond that way to Jesus. And we see a number of other responses, too. Generally speaking, we see three kinds of reactions. Uh, We saw them in the passage earlier. The first one is that there are those that reject the truth. They deny it. They say, no, that's not what's happening. Uh, I'm going to fight that. Maybe they're dismissive of it. They just don't want to interact with it. Maybe they're scoffers or worse, they become antagonists. They fight against it. They try to suppress it. The second category of people are those that acknowledge that something's happening there, acknowledge some aspect of the truth. Maybe they're even amazed and admire Jesus, but they remain removed. That's great for you. And then there are those that see the truth for what it is, and it moves them. It moves them to worship, it moves them to change their lives. They believe. So the question for all of us is, where do we fit? What is our response to Jesus? And does Jesus, the truth of his life, death, and resurrection, doesn't make any difference at all? Let's look at the first category, of people. Now, I know lots of people who fit into this category, those that are dismissive or the deniers, the antagonistic. Uh, We certainly can see folks like that in uh, verses 5 and following. Just to read those passages. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning their hearts why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? They're saying this is outrageous, what he's claiming here. The implications of what he's saying is he's equating himself with God. That is unacceptable. It's outrageous. Now, the scribes, they're basically the educated people uh, that, uh, of, of that era, at least in, in that Jewish community. They're the scholars, and they came to hear Jesus. We don't know why. Maybe they're just trying to check him out. Hmm, does he, does he really match up with our orthodoxy, uh, the phenomena of it? Lots of people are hearing him, so we better go too. Uh, or maybe they're looking for a, a reason to condemn Jesus, which is certainly true later in the Gospels, the Pharisees and the scribes try to find a way to condemn Jesus. Um, We don't know all of the reasons that that they attended, but we know that they are outraged at what he's saying. That's their response to him. Maybe it's because what he says offends their sensibilities. Maybe it's because what he's saying is challenging their spiritual authority uh, in the community. But whatever it is, they don't like where Jesus is going with this line of thinking. And something tells me that it doesn't matter what the facts would be what proofs they would offer to scribes. And in fact, the Gospels bear that out. They were outraged by Jesus and they didn't want to be confused with the facts. What he was saying was unacceptable. I think about uh, the scholarly people in our day and age, those that are considered scholars of PhDs, those working in, in, in university and in academic settings, those writing books, philosophers. And I have a lot of respect for the academic Work they've done, the discipline that they have, have a lot of respect for even the atheistic philosophers. Uh, They can be great thinkers, very persuasive in their arguments. But but I would also say that the vast majority, maybe not all, but the vast majority, make claims that are as bald-faced faith claims as anything I might profess as a Christian. Let me give you an example. Sam Harris. I've talked about him uh, a few weeks ago in in a sermon. He's a noted writer, philosopher, and atheist. And he wrote this, science is the, in the broadest sense, includes all the reasonable claims to knowledge about ourselves and the world. It's another way of saying that claims of religion are unreasonable, okay? That's the implicit um, uh, statement that he's making there. If you're not sure, you can go read other things. He says it more explicitly in other places in his writings. Now, he makes this claim about science despite the fact that there's constant revision in science. There are lots of things that science claimed to be true and ridiculed as, ridiculed as false that now we acknowledge as true things. For instance, we used to, the scientists and astronomers used to say the universe was, always was always the way it was. It was called the steady, the steady state theory. And when someone uh, proposed the idea that actually there used to be nothing and then there was something... Uh, they, they accuse that person of being influenced by their religious beliefs. It was made by a Catholic priest who was also an astronomer, but nowadays he's considered to be absolutely right. Despite constant revisions in science, uh, despite the outrageous and erroneous claims made, and even worse, the use science has often been put to to uh, justify things like eugenics and racial superiority. Sam Harris says... All the reasonable claims are contained in science. There's an absolute faith that science will will answer all the remaining questions and bring correction to any faulty perspectives. Now, I will say this. I I have respect for that faith claim. I might even concede that there's a certain reasonable to us. Science has proved very useful, very useful uh, in improving the human condition. Um, So I I might concede that it's a reasonable faith claim. But that's what it is, a faith claim. Because can't, we can't verify that it's true and we can't readily falsify it either. Sam Harris would say about religion that when you can't falsify something, then it's erroneous. But then he goes and says this, a faith claim. And the fact that he, many atheists are blind to the nature of the claims that they make uh, is telling me that they just find something unacceptable and therefore dismiss it. I respectfully submit that just because someone finds something unacceptable doesn't make it untrue. I would also say this, that since you're here tonight, I doubt seriously that any of you have that perspective. Nonetheless, you might know people who do. Now we're more likely to have the amazed perspective. Um, and that's something we need to ask ourselves, no matter where, we're, where we are in our walk with Jesus, are we worshipers or are we just amazed with Jesus? Um, I think that whether we admit it to ourselves or not, there are many more people in our midst that, uh, that, that are of that perspective. Uh, maybe here tonight, may, maybe a lot on Sunday morning. We fit in that second category, uh, admiring Jesus, fascinated with him amazed with what he's done but not necessarily given over to him we acknowledge there's something to this jesus thing perhaps we're not sure what to make of his miraculous works we don't know what to make of his life death and resurrection but there's something there there's something that is going on and we see like folks like that all over the gospels we see them here again in this passage Uh, and folks like them verse 12 uh, when it talks about the paralytic and he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them and they were all amazed and they glorified God they said this is awesome God did this thing saying we never saw anything like this they're amazed praise Jesus We don't have it so clearly here, but in many other places, when we see that people are amazed, they often go back to their lives unchanged. This is awesome, great. All right, see you next Tuesday. See you next Saturday morning at Temple. Now, at first blush, we might think this is a good response, or at least a good first step. But again, we see it time and time again in the scriptures that people are amazed and then go back to their life unchanged. They seem... They see and acknowledge what Jesus has done. Maybe they're even inspired by it. Uh, they're entertained by it. Their spirits are lifted by it. But it's more like going to see a very moving film or an inspiring book. Man, that book was awesome. I wanna recommend that to somebody. But you wouldn't necessarily call it a life-changing event. Uh, maybe they will even come back to hear his teaching later, But uh, but giving themselves over to Christ, having their lives centered on who Jesus is and his teachings, uh, that seems a bit extreme. Isn't it enough that I honor Jesus? It's not unlike the acknowledgement that my, the treatments that my children and wife received. uh, I'm thankful for it. I respect it. But you're not likely to see me in those doctor's offices. This is the kind of response to Christ that C.S. Lewis characterized as wholly insufficient. And writing about this kind of reaction, he's talking a little more broadly than I am right now, but but in general, he's talking about this idea of I honor Jesus, I respect him. Isn't that enough? This is what he writes. I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. In other words, I'm not... you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let, no, let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has left, not left that open to us. He did not intend to. And yet this is the very thing most of us want to do, to acknowledge him without really granting him control over our lives. How many of us really fit into that category? How many uh, here tonight or how many on a Sunday morning? Oh, with our lips, we profess the words, Jesus is Lord, but in our hearts, what's really reigning there? Do we come to church and Bible study? We're edified by the moral teachings. We're fascinated with the theology and then go home and live uh, with the same values that our neighbors have, with the same Things that we're looking to to fulfill us, to give us meaning, to give us happiness. That's not the appropriate response. We need something more profound in our response. And we see that in those that bring their friend to Jesus for healing. In verse 3, this is what the gospel writer uh, tells us about them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic... Car- carried by four men and when they could not get near him because of the crowd they removed the roof above him and when they had made an opening they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay and then Jesus saw their faith and he said to the paralytic son your sins are forgiven what a dramatic moment but I'm really taken with what is necessary for these guys to get their friend in front of Jesus uh, uh, the, his, their friend was in need he, he was crippled uh, from the waist down and they knew that Jesus had what he needed. They believed it. And there wasn't anything that was going to get in their way. So they carried their friend. How far, I don't know. Have you ever gotten three other buddies and tried to carry somebody on a stretcher? I mean, it's a lot easier than trying to carry it by yourself. But it is not easy carrying some, you know, somebody on a stretcher. How far they went? I don't know. They got, they got to the place. The crowd was so thick they couldn't get through. So what did they do? They climb up on the roof. Doesn't really explain that, but how did they get up there? Was there a ladder? It probably wasn't a stairwell. You ever tried to carry someone on a stretcher up a ladder? I mean, this is some serious commitment there. And then once they get up there, they're trying to let them down. And I don't know what the construction of the building was. I don't know if it was clay and straw or if, or if there was wood, but they had to tear some things up you ever gone over to a friend's house and started whacking away at their roof? Say, I'm gonna do a little construction here. Don't mind me. They were unconcerned with decorum and protocol. They needed their friend to get to Jesus. They knew that Jesus could answer their problems. He was their savior. He had divine power. They needed to get his, their friend to him and they were gonna do whatever they had to to do it. hmm Now, there's lots of things that I have, some people say, I have a passion for. You know, I'm a fanboy. Does anybody know what a fanboy is? Some some people know what a fanboy is. I'm into movies and comic books and things like that. You know, I have a wallet here, and it's all Marvel comic book stuff. You know, so my kids got that for me because I'm a big fan. I'm a fan. But I have never been to a comic book convention. I have never gone to seek out Stan Lee and get his autograph. Okay, if you know who Stan Lee is, some of you don't know who Stan Lee is. He's kind of the godfather of all the Marvel Comics, creator of Spider Man and other superhero characters. I've never gone to see him. I'm a fan, you know, but that's just a lot of work to get to those places. I'm a big fan of Harry Potter. I've read all the books, I know a lot about them. I can even tell you, I'm. You know, I'm I'm a dilettante scholar on it, but I can talk to you about all the places where J.K. Rowling is making references to Christianity and she has references to C.S. Lewis's characters and, and Chronicles of Narnia. It's fascinating, but I've never been to a book signing. I used to be a huge fan of U2, but the closest I ever got to the lead singer of U2, Bono, was about 50 yards away when I went to go see him at a concert, when I bought a ticket at a reasonable price, And in a very ordinary way and say, look, that's Bono. These men had something more for Jesus than simply being fans. They had something driving them. It was conviction. Jesus was, again, the means of their salvation and he had divine power. And that conviction led them to extreme, maybe even unreasonable actions. And when I think about the church in America, sometimes when I think about my own devotion, I wonder if we aren't more fans of Jesus than worshipers. I saw more conviction, more loyalty, more passion for the St. Louis Rams than for Jesus. And where did that loyalty get us with football, huh? Disappointment. Jesus is offering us so much more than entertainment on a Sunday afternoon or civic pride or bragging rights after a championship game. He offers us meaning and purpose. He offers us healing, both spiritual and physical. He offers the restoration of life itself and the resurrection. He offers connection with the God of the cosmos, transcendence, for us to get perspective on the fact that, yes, we suffer in this life, but it is not What defines our life. Now the only appropriate response is in kind with the life that Jesus offered on our behalf. We should offer our lives. Now some of you come to church out of respect for a family member's belief or maybe out of respect for Jesus himself. That's awesome. I commend you for that. Uh, But I think you can acknowledge the tension that you have coming to church on a regular basis, whether it's every week or twice a month or, uh, or just once a quarter, uh, the tension between coming and showing that respect and then what you hear that Jesus is God. Because if that's true, we owe him a lot more than simply quarterly attendance at church. The so what of the truths presented here over the past few weeks is so much more than you should be a fan of Jesus. It should compel us all to worship, to submit ourselves, and to find satisfaction in that service because it's the only place we can find ultimate satisfaction and joy. So I invite you to that right now. Wherever you are in your life, whether you're a skeptic or whether you've been a believer of Jesus for, for many years, but you know, you've been struggling with something recently, fall at the feet of Jesus. Say, yes, I worship. I trust you to give me meaning, to forgive me of the things that I've done wrong, to restore my life, and to give me hope even in death. And I give you my life not as an exchange for what you've done, but out of gratitude. That, that is the appropriate response. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word and for this opportunity to gather in your name tonight. We do pray that you would impress upon us your love, the extent of it, the commitment that you made to us, that you yourself would leave the the majestic scenes of heaven and take on human life, the humiliation of it, that you might restore relationship with us. Father, help us not only to see the reasonableness of these claims, but the rightness of them, that we would feel the compulsion that it should rightly create in us to worship, to worship from the heart, not simply to honor you with occasional attendance at church, but to say, Lord, you redeemed my life from the grave. Use it as you will. Work that in us, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.